Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis. I'm your host, Deacon Jonathan Stewart, and I am joined by special guest host, you know him from previous shows, it's Nick Lachetti. Hello, Nick. Hey, everybody. And we have a very special guest, uh, some fascinating work, really groundbreaking work, if you ask me, uh, really important, relevant, uh, next level work. We have Dr. Nathan Bjorgi uh, with uh, uh, talking to us about the project. Hello, Dr. Bjorgi. Hello, um, I represent a paradigm called liberation theurgy, and this is kind of a play on words with the more familiar liberation theology. So I'm trying to um, kind of mix and match with that paradigm a little bit. Um, I'm mostly concerned with the use of uh, critical theory, uh, which is the polite word in academia for Marxist historicism, applied mostly to the context of neo-pagan theology. So the idea is to try to uh, critique and examine the way that contemporary neo-paganism, which includes Wicca, but also particularly ceremonial magical traditions, which are my more specific focus, but some of which I, I have to say applies particularly to uh, Wiccan practice as well. So I don't want to artificially exclude that category. Um, and basically, Contemporary neo-paganism um, re-emerges as a religious tradition, as a mass movement, largely in the 1950s, although there's some earlier antecedents to that, uh, particularly with the so-called Thelemic tradition represented by Aleister Crowley, which is the main focus of my work. Um, and that begins much earlier in the, in the 20th century. But as a, as a widespread popular movement, uh, neo-paganism uh, really kind of explodes in the post-war period and um, it starts out as a very radical movement focused on feminism in particular, uh, but as it becomes more mainstream over the years, it's become increasingly uh, conservative. And um, so what I'm trying to do in my work is kind of recover some of the initial more radical threads of interest in this type of discourse and push back against um, some of the class issues of reification that occurs in the community as older members of the community become more established economically and be, start to lose patience with um, the interests sometimes of younger members of the community interested in issues like uh, trans inclusion or the legacy of colonialism with regards to um, inclusion issues in diversity, issues of race, um, class and gender. and so I think that engagement with these issues should be really central to the concern of the neo-pagan community. Um, some of that has implications for larger discourse. I'm mostly in this conversation going to be focused on a neo-pagan context, but um, as we proceed, some of that comment will apply to a larger American particularly context. I hope this will uh, also be of interest internationally, but I am going to be mostly focused on issues in the United States right now. Um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from and what my work is related to. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be 
a really important conversation. I think you're doing really important work, particularly if you have that focus on neo-paganism where, you know, there is talk that we are going through an occult revival. It is, if that's not true, then religion is certainly going through some interesting changes and mutations in the West. Uh, but for a lot of people, like they're, if they're interested in the occult, or even now, if you're a young person, if you're interested in religion, that religion is often going to be some form of neo-paganism. So to have this kind of work as people, young people, as you mentioned, are, are streaming into this movement, uh, movements, uh, the bodies of thought, uh, I think is is so needed. Uh, before we do dive in, I will I will ruin the flow. Let me ruin the show for a sec by doing our commercial for our, our uh, Patreon. Uh, we do need uh, your financial support to to present the show, to keep it going. And you can donate for as little as a dollar per piece of media per month. Uh, and you can put a cap on that if you're scared. We're going to do a million pieces of media, and those who have been following and watching closely have noticed we are doing more media. We're not running it all through the Patreon, but we're doing bonus shows, and Father Tony, our founder, is doing um, many more live events. He's, he's trying to do you know four or five live events a week is what he wants to work up to. So really exciting things happening. You can also do paypal.com slash Gnostic. We want to do a one-time donation, and uh, like, share uh, the show, tell people about it, share it on your social media, give it a good review, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, where the Archons left us some bad reviews. Uh, Five-star ratings. Uh, just take a show and email it to someone that you know. Uh, email them this show, because they'll appreciate it. Okay, <laughs> Dr. Biorgi. Um, Biorgi. Um, uh, so, you talked a little bit about uh, why you... Um, why you started the Liberation uh, Theurgy pro uh, Project. And, and you mentioned that the project is, is in many ways has a focus on neo-paganism, but uh, also it does touch on Philema. What is your background and your connection to, to Philema? Sure. Uh, I've been involved in the community for about 25 years now, uh, since 1996. I um, was initially initiated into uh, the Philemic tradition um, and this occurred in Berkeley in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and in that context, the Wiccan and ceremonial magical communities are very interwoven. So they're not really fundamentally distinct from each other. Um, and this was um, particularly more evident in the 90s when I was uh, involved, where in the kind of earlier period of the 70s and 80s, there'd been a little bit more uh, kind of need to differentiate the brand names between the two different um, sort of flavors, but the impulse to need to do that had kind of faded a little bit in that the, it, it's really a kind of linked community. Um, basically, um, historically, contemporary neo-paganism really does derive, um, it emerges out of a kind of theosophical context. If we were having this conversation 100 years ago, it would be theosophy rather than neo-paganism that would be the primary cultural paradigm. Yeah. But after the Second World War, um, theosophy kind of fades away and neo-paganism um, emerges as the primary cultural paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, now, the origin, primary originator of that is the, the work of Aleister Crowley, um, and his philosophy is called Philema, uh, and I practice that tradition uh, I practice ceremonial magic, and I also um, focus primarily on a, a perspective on neo-paganism that's informed by Thelemic philosophy. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
when Gerald Gardner emerges in the 1950s as in promoting Wicca um, as its own particular flavor, uh, he did know Crowley and kind of got a lot of the ideas to get the ball rolling with that from the writings of Aleister Crowley. Um, but for a long time, uh, Wicca wanted to try to um, differentiate itself from Thelema. Yes. And more recently, maybe in the last 20 years, that particular need has kind of faded. And I think most Wiccans today would acknowledge that Crowley is kind of a primary forebearer to Gerald Gardner. Uh, part of the reason for this relates to what Harold Bloom uh, calls the anxiety of influence, which is that when you're a strong creator and you're um, promoting your own set of ideas, which is what Gerald Gardner was doing, was, was launching Wicca, um, you want to underplay the influence that is coming into your field of interest from major preceding figures. You want to kind of rebrand or promote what you're doing as more, maybe more original than it actually is. And so um, particularly when Wicca was establishing itself in the 70s and 80s, um, it wanted to promote the idea that it was less related to Crowley's ideas than really it was. But as time goes on and Wicca becomes more and more established and kind of just taken for granted in the larger cultural scene, uh, the need to um, disavow the influence from Crowley kind of becomes less urgent. And so there's more openness to acknowledging that as a, as a primary influence. So um, while I'm mostly gonna be talking about Philema and Crowley, this does in fact relate to um, Wicca and other forms of ceremonial magical traditions or um, what you could call witchcraft. So um, just keep that in mind as I'm usually framing things in a Thelemic way, but they're gonna relate to um, this larger context of, of influence as well. Um, I began working particularly on liberation theurgy when I was um, completing my uh, doctoral degree at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Uh, I finished my doctorate in 2017, and my thesis work in particular had the moniker liberation theurgy as how I wanted to kind of um, identify what I was doing. Um, and so I worked hard in that period to kind of um, work out the particular methodology, criteria, and theory of um, what I'm trying to promote. Um, and in particular, I'm trying to um, push back against what I see as a kind of reabsorption of what was originally a more radical paradigm. Um, and it becomes increasingly commodified over time and gets reabsorbed back into the larger set of assumptions in liberal consensus society in terms of um, what you're supposed to be doing when you're doing a scene or a thing or you're having a paradigm. And um, <clears throat> certain values or expectations that come from marketing or from the idea that you're going to treat your community as a bunch of customers rather than as um, uh, a place where you could challenge the larger um, set of assumptions in, you know, the larger society. These factors all begin to come into play. And so then it becomes necessary at a certain point when the initial sort of radical impetus of a tradition starts to exhaust itself, you have to reassess and go back and try to um, re-engage with the original kind of root or source of what you're trying to, what you're trying to do. 
And so that's what I've been trying to do with uh, Liberation Theurgy. The YouTube uh, channel that I have, which is also under the name of Liberation Theurgy, you can just look it up on, on YouTube, type it in. Um, I got that started more recently, um, in fact, during the quarantine. And I was involved for a number of years with an independent Thelemic temple um, called Temple Sophia Babylon Caledonia, which also has a, um, a Facebook page, which you can watch some of our masses where we were performing the Gnostic mass as a public event, um, separate from other, other organized venues for this. And um, when the quarantine started, it became clear that we weren't gonna be able to have public events anymore. So um, I started to put some of my stuff up in the video format um, at that point and um, try to appear, become visible a little bit more on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, subsequently, the main priestess of the temple that was my main partner in that, a person by the name of Carrie Sealine, uh, she unfortunately passed away of cancer uh, last October. And so we've had to kind of uh, have the temple go dark, although we hope to reopen it in a new context at some point in the near future. In the meantime, I'm um, you know, available to uh, promote my own ideas. And uh, so here I am. Yeah. Um, so if we could stay with Philema for a moment, and maybe yes. some of this could could possibly be applied to, to Wicca, you can let me know, uh, because sometimes I do feel that uh, the Wicca, as well as other forms of neo-paganism, could be very individualist. But, you know, I, I would say a very common stereotype about Philema, and maybe, Nick, you can talk about this, too, after after Dr. Uh, Bjorgi answers. But it, a lot of people have an, an impression that, uh, that that Crowley and his system is like sort of a proto Ayn Rand. It's an ideology of extreme individualism. People here do what thou wilt and uh, believe that it is um, uh, uh, sort of a right wing libertarian ideology. Uh, this is very common common uh, the belief, very common idea I find when when I'm talking to people. So th is this true? And wouldn't this contradict any of these? Uh, uh, sort of liberation uh, uh, theology ideas and uh, liberation the theurgical ideas that you're working with and applying uh, in these contexts? Well, it's not true that um, this is a common misreading of Crowley. I would um, say that this is similar to the traditional conservative misreading of Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, who is often also, uh, there's an attempted appropriation of his ideas and has been historically for a very long time. Uh, by conservatives. Um, this is fundamentally a misreading of Nietzsche's work, and I would also argue that the right-wing reading of Crowley is fundamentally also a misreading of Crowley. Um, so contemporary right-wing conservatism is a form of liberalism. Um, and the I would actually argue that the primary ideology that Crowley is concerned to criticize is in fact bourgeois liberalism. Um, and he's concerned uh, as a uh, as a queer man to criticize the bourgeois social norms that restricted his uh, freedom of social and particularly sexual expression. Um, so just because he made it clear that he was hostile to both fascism and also to Stalinism, this does not automatically make him a liberal. And um, I think that this is a persistent misreading, particularly of what he means by individualism. So um, conservatives will want to
claim that they have a kind of um, uh, exclusive right to define the natural definitions of terms like individualism, liberty, freedom, things like that. These terms all have a much more complex, diverse meaning in political, various different political philosophies. Conservatives are gonna to wanna to say, the definition that we have of these terms is the correct natural definition. Well, actually there is no natural definition of these terms. They all have a historical contextual meaning that can vary depending on the context. Crowley makes it quite clear that his concept of individuality, he is an individualist just like Friedrich Nietzsche is, is a social concept of individuality. So for example, let me give you some citations. Um, in his essay, Duty, um, that's the title of this essay, you can look it up. Um, Crowley enumerates, quote, the chief rules of practical conduct to be observed by those who accept the law of Philema. The law of Philema is do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. So under the heading of what he calls your duty to yourself, uh, he includes the following exhortations. Mm -hmm. Contemplate your own nature. Consider every element thereof both separately and in relation to all the rest so as to judge accurately the true purpose of the totality of your being. So this implies that individuality has to be considered both separately, but also relationally. You have to balance out these two components. If you're just focused on what you can get as a private bourgeois um, individual in the way that that appears in um, commodity society, you're actually ultimately limiting what your individuality can potentially be. Um, let me give you another citation, just so I have more than one text that demonstrates this is Crowley's notion of individuality. In the famous introduction to Magic and Theory and Practice, one of his most well-known works, he has a number of uh, theorems of magic. Um, the most famous one is that magic is defined as the science of, and art of causing change to con uh, in conformity with will. That's only one of the definitions. He's got, in fact, um, 28 definitions of or theorems of magic. The seventh theorem of magic is that every man and every woman has a course depending partly on the self and partly on the environment, which is natural and necessary for each. Anyone who is forced from their own course, either through not understanding themselves or through external opposition comes into conflict with the order of the universe and suffers accordingly. So again, we have this notion that you have to balance out the factor of environment and the self, and that the difference between these two is in fact, perhaps very radically fluid. Now, also we have to keep in mind what the ultimate definition of the self is for Crowley in terms of his magical ontology, if you will. Now in um, traditional Christian um, organic hierarchical um, notions of metaphysics, um, the ultimate nature of reality is defined as a kind of metaphysical unity. So there's a kind of ultimate one, maybe that's God, the monotheistic deity, or that could be the national state, or it could be the Volk or the people. And then there's a kind of hierarchy that's established by your relation to that ultimate unity. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is the ultimately um, conservative notion of um, how the world is supposed to be organized. Probably the best example of this would be uh, Julius Evola, 
his notion that that the tradition, as he calls it, involves that you're supposed to have a kind of organic hierarchy of being, and everything's supposed to be related to this, and they're supposed to everybody's supposed to know what their place is, and masters are supposed to be masters, and slaves are supposed to be slaves, and Crowley is concerned to explode all these notions of metaphysical unity by instead having his absolute as what he calls the Kabbalistic zero, or a kind of ultimate um, nothingness, which is a kind of openness where um, you can really be whatever you can make yourself to be in a kind of anarchy of being. Um, so an individuality conserved and conceived in those terms um, is a kind of anarchic notion of self that is not conformable to an organic hierarchical notion of individuality. And so although Crowley and libertarian conservatives will both use this term individuality to describe what they're about, what that means is radically different and in fact not compatible between these two um, modes of thought. And I think a lot of people who read Crowley, they see the language of liberty or individuality or freedom, which is certainly language that he uses, and because they've inherited, usually from a Christian background, a notion of um, a kind of organic hierarchicalism or a kind of ultimate notion of unity is what you're supposed to spiritually be seeking for, um, that they miss that Crowley, because he has a different notion of the absolute, is um, on a different track with these terminologies, that there's been a kind of what Nietzsche calls a transvaluation of values. Yeah so that he may be using some of the same words as traditional mysticism or spirituality, but all these terms mean something very different in Thelemic philosophy that isn't conformable to a more traditional conservative notion of spirituality. I don't know if Nick, do you wanna to add to this yeah. or say anything about this? Um, so maybe not, this is a little jumping the gun on our question list, but it seems appropriate <laughs> at this moment. So one of the things that I was really uh, thought was great in what you are saying is, is uh, you know, and is in your dissertation is the relationship between dialectics and Thelema and then using dialectical materialism to interpret Thelema to do this, this the reading that you're doing. Um, and I felt when you were just speaking that, you know, part of the this this misunderstanding that Crowley is either should be interpreted by in, through like a liberal paradigm or even a traditionalist paradigm, so you mentioned Evola, is this idea that there is this ontological essence that's static um, in, some, sure. in some way. But, Whereas a dialectical worldview, maybe you could kind of give us a, a summary of, of some of, of how you're using dialectical materialism is that really the world is, is in flux and there's not, there's no solid kind of ontological um, essence that, you know, you're just, you're, you're sussing out and then you have to live in that organic way, you know, in like a hierarchy or something, but actually sure. everything's moving. So yeah, I, I see that in Philema a lot but I don't feel like anyone, besides your, your work, I've actually hadn't seen people draw that out much. Sure, well, um... A lot of my work emerges out of a, uh, the context of the Thelema uh, community in Berkeley over the last few decades, which um, has a lot of connections to the uh, counterculture movement, the 60s and 70s, and has this kind of radical core to it. Um, and of course, that's diversely interpreted. Uh, back to the point that you, to your point, Nick, um, the um, concept of the Kabbalistic zero in Crowley. Another way that he defines this is what he calls uh, zero to the zero power. Hmm. Um, so what that means is, is that if you have a concept of nothingness as your absolute, for that nothingness to actually be absolutely nothing, it would also have to negate itself. Hmm. So in other words, you would have to have something, namely 
the cosmic reality that we're, we find ourselves in. So, but there's a kind of um, trace of that ultimate ontological nothingness that persists within reality in the sense that um, we can then dialectically characterize um, all phenomenon as in Buddhist terms, lacking an abiding essence. This is, um, so the concept of a kind of nothingness as the ultimate ground of reality is something that Crowley does get from Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of reintegrating that with the Western theurgic tradition. We'll have, perhaps have more to say about theurgy shortly. But basically the notion, um, I read zero to the zero power as a kind of self-negating nothingness is equivalent to Hegel's no, dialectical notion of the negation of negation. Mm-hmm. Now we know that when Crowley was um, working on some of his um, philosophical papers where he formulated the idea of the Kabbalistic zero, particularly a very important paper from 1902 entitled Bar Shith, an Essay in Ontology. Um, and that this informs some of the ideas that later appear in the, the Book of the Law. Um, he, we know that he was reading Hegel's logic. Um, and so I think that he's getting this notion of zero to the zero power or the negativity that negates itself actually very directly from a reading of Hegel's dialectic. Mm-hmm. Now, Hegel's notion of the dialectic is, is that for Hegel, the notion of essence, uh, he uses the German word basin. Um, in traditional metaphysics that derives from Plato and Aristotle, um, metaphysics consists of the idea that all existing phenomena have a kind of internal essence that's internal to them, their, mm-hmm. uh, their form, in virtue of which their, their matter has cohesion as an yeah. event. Now, in Hegel's dialectic, he dialectically inverts that. And in his concept of essence, um, phenomenon have, are defined as having their essence outside of themselves, mm-hmm. not inside of themselves, but outside of themselves. In other words, it's the whole impact of the historical context of an event that gives it its meaning, structure, and form. So the form, in a way, comes from outside rather than from the inside. So what that means is that since everything comes from the outside and then inside, there is no kind of internal essence, but nevertheless, every phenomenon is a completely unique expression of um, how these internal fa- external factors are, are relating to each other. And because there is no fundamental abiding ontological essence, um, freedom or um, Kantian autonomy Mm-hmm. Um, derived from Immanuel Kant's idea of autonomy is the kind of ultimate horizon of Hegel's dialectic. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings in particular uh, have a kind of existential freedom. Uh, the later existentialists picked this up from Hegel's dialectic as well. Um, and so because things are not ultimately determined, we're free as human beings to make of ourselves what we will. How we perceive or posit ourselves then becomes who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to then become responsible for this kind of hermeneutical and framing that we're then, um, it's as if we're always producing a kind of virtual reality that Hegel calls spirit, that then is kind of the world that we find ourselves in. This is like what Heidegger calls being. It's this kind of enfolding hermeneutical horizon that's always being posited by human activity. Mm-hmm. But because it reverberates back upon us as a kind of apparently objective external object that we don't see how we're the active agents creating it, 
um, we lose sight of the fact that we're the ones who ultimately have agency mm -hmm. and we just get absorbed in what we assume to be this sort of given consensus reality. Mm -hmm. um, and so what magic then becomes about in a kind of dialectical sense is we have to regain our agency to more proactively reprogram ourselves. And magic is a way to use language because language is a primary way that we construct the consensus reality that we find ourselves in, where um, our social identity is something that we inherit from the language usages that surround us as we're socialized in the particular culture or community that we're, we grow up in. And so because that just happens to us, we then lose sight of the fact that we can then appropriate that language and then um, language ourselves more proactively. Mm -hmm. And so we use spells and magic as a kind of spelling to reappropriate the grammar of the culture that we're in, um, like grimoire, a magical book of spells that comes from the word grammar. So it's, it's just another use of language. So rather than um, the consensus reality um, telling us through language that we're supposed to be a consumer who's supposed to go to work and have this particular social identity in terms of our assumed gender or whatever. Um, instead, we can spell out through the spells that we cast a new, uh, potentially new, more liberative identity for ourselves. And this can be done individually or in community through a magical working group where we can come together as magicians and potentially through a kind of neuro-linguistic programming, we can reprogram ourselves and create more, create a kind of space between ourselves and consensus reality where some kind of free action becomes possible in a way that the larger consensus reality is always telling us that it isn't, that we just have to go to work, get paid, these are the products that we can buy, and then these are the entertainment sort of things that are available that then we're supposed to be fans of that then tell us who we are, whatever. Um, we don't have to just be consumers. We can also create our own creative products ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to just read the stuff that's there. We can write our, write our own novels. We can create our own narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think you explained really well what, what magic and spells uh, are, but can, can you tell us what is theurgy? Mm -hmm. Well, theurgy is a concept. Well, for starters, theurgy is basically the Greek word for magic, the ancient Greek word that just means what we would today call magic, uh, particularly magic spelled with a K, M-A-G-I-C-K, like that. Um, that's the way Crowley spelled magic, which is in fact just the older modern kind of Baroque way that magic was spelled in say the, the 18th century. That was just how the word was spelled. So theurgy um, is a, a concept of ceremonial ritual magic that is particularly philosophically developed in um, the 300s AD in the ancient Roman Empire. And there's a particular set of philosophers. This is called Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. um, there's a revival of Platonism in the late Roman Empire. Um, and there's several philosophers associated with this. The first is Plotinus. He's mostly concerned with mysticism. But then his successor, Iamblichus, gets interested in the way that ceremonial rituals, particularly um, rites of worship in pagan temples, um, can be used to so energize the soul to achieve a kind of union with the divine. 
Um, the scholar of Neoplatonism, Gregory Shaw, in his classic 1990s work, Theurgy and the Soul, uh, which is an excellent book on Iamblichus, highly recommended, um, he defines theurgy as a kind of demiurgy, another Greek word that just literally means God work, um, where you energize the soul to achieve union with the, with the one or the highest divine reality. Now, in a modern context, that divine reality is ultimately going to be identified with human existence. So it's not going to be a, a metaphysical transcendence beyond the cosmos. But the, some of the basic philosophical notions or procedures still apply. So, for example, in Neoplatonic theurgy, one of the things you're trying to do is to get into communication with a particular um, guardian spirit that's been assigned to you by the divine governance of the universe. There's this kind of magical hierarchy of beings, uh, angels and gods and spirits. And that hierarchy has assigned to each person a particular guardian angel or spirit called the guardian daimon. Uh, daimon, which later becomes the word demon, but that's misleading because in Greek, daimon just means any kind of spirit. So they're not necessarily, they could be evil, they could be good, they could be whatever. Um, so each person has a particular guardian daimon. And when you, it, it, you, you basically have to develop your own magical cult where your personal daimon is the god that you're invoking. And then when you get into kind of communication, um, with that daimon, um, you're then able to overcome the destiny that's imposed on you by the astrological influences that are determining your existence, and you can become uh, what's called eleutheric, you, which is the, the Greek word for liberty, meaning you're released from cosmic destiny, and your soul can then, particularly after your death, can reascend up into the heavens and have a more meritorious uh, rebirth, uh, where you might become a god or an angel or, or some kind of higher being that would not involve you being so enmeshed with matter, which is considered to be bad by the by Platonism. You're trying to liberate yourself from the, your soul's enmeshment in matter. So communication with this daimon is a way to do that. So fast forward to modern times, uh, Alistair Crowley is then concerned in his practice of magic where you're trying to achieve what's called the knowledge and conversation with the holy guardian angel, which is basically the equivalent function where um, this angel is basically a kind of higher and divine aspect of yourself. So it's, you could say it's your higher and divine self, your highest, your, your best possible human potential. You have to kind of construct or conceive of that and then magically project yourself towards the realization of that. And there can be very spiritualistic kind of phenomenon that you might or might not have as part of that process. And this is how you actualize your, your ultimate potential for being, which is going to be different than what maybe the consensus reality that surrounds you is telling you is more limited. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to release yourself from that and instead have a different kind of more freer existential self-projection. And so magic then becomes a way to do that. And so that links to these older um, Greco-Roman forms of theurgy. And so it's useful to look back on those earlier traditions mm -hmm. Um, to see ways that they can be influential on, on the modern tradition of magic. Um, mm -hmm. So, so again, that's, that's um, a way yeah. to do that. Vic, did you want to say something? Oh, yeah. So one of, the, one of the things that I really found fascinating about your dissertation is that there's a critique of Neoplatonism as, a, as, as an ideology of the ruling class. And I thought that was 
kind of very interesting, both in terms of the ancient world, but also, you know, for me, one of the, one of the fascinating things about this and in terms of modern paganism is that Neoplatonism and kind of a popular Platonism is frequently undergirding people's assumptions about magic and the spiritual world. Even though in, you know, I also have been through kind of a Christian, a liberal Christian seminary setting. And there, you know, Platonism usually is the theology of a pretty conservative and traditionalist form of, of, of theology and not usually the kind of radical sort of theology that, that we've been talking about in terms of dialectics. Um, so I'm just curious about if you could say more about that, that critique of Neoplatonism as this potential ideology of the ruling class and how that comes into play in modern occult practice and, and kind sure. of perception of it. Yeah. Well, a lot of this conservative set of ideas that are present in contemporary occultism uh, derive in part, not exclusively, but in part from René Guénon's uh, traditionalism, mm -hmm. which reads what they claim to be the universal perennial tradition. I would argue that, in fact, there is no perennial tradition. There's mm -hmm. um, yeah. just a diversity of different social practices that we choose to call religion, mm -hmm. uh, which may or may not be compatible with each other. But um, the notion, what they basically do is they read the diverse pluralistic traditions of religion in the past in terms of um, Platonism, mm -hmm. where there's an ultimate divine principle that transcends the cosmos. And then there's a kind of cascading of stages of being that emanate out of that ultimate unity mm -hmm. that then have a kind of hierarchy that you can climb back up to get back to the ultimate unity. Um, so this is very much primarily a notion in Neoplatonism, for example, where you have what uh, Lovelock, Lovelock calls the great chain of being, yep. where you're trying yep. to climb up this ladder of emanations back to the primary um, source of being. Now, um, basically, I read this in Marxist terms, where uh, for Marx's philosophy of history, um, religious ideology always reflects the is a reflection of and a justification of the given um, class order of society or class structure of society. Basically, you take the given class structure and then you justify it by reading that into the supernatural reality. So um, in Neoplatonism, just as their culture is feudal and hierarchical, they see reality, ultimate reality, supernatural reality, undergirding reality as mm -hmm. feudal and hierarchical. Yeah. So, um, Fast forward to modern times, um, part of the problem with liberalism, and now I'm talking about modern liberalism that we're all part of, whether we're liberal or conservative or whatever, it's all one um, overarching system of globalized capitalism and there's diverse expressions of that, but it has a class system. And part of what liberalism does to neutralize people's ability to resist that class system is it tells people that there isn't really a class system. So one of the things that's so distinctive about modern liberalism is, is that we exist in a class society where one of the most important functions of ideology in that class system is to tell us that there's no ideology and that there's no class system. Meanwhile, we exist in a world where there's astronomical um, concentration of wealth in the bourgeois ownership class. And people are more and more, um, who work for a living are more and more being proletarianized into kind of minimum wage, um, shift gig labor positions where they more and more don't have access to basic services like healthcare, food, um, uh, environmentally coherent living conditions, and so forth and so on. So 
um, in the case of uh, contemporary paganism, um, Platonism can be a valuable ideology to um, kind of assuage that um, the impact of class struggle yeah. by convincing yourself that, um, well, in this world, you may be on the verge of homelessness and at a job that you don't like and this, that, or the other economic factors kind of controls your freedom. Um, in the supernatural world that you have spiritualistic communication with um, through the gods or whatever, um, mm -hmm. uh, in that world, you're an enlightened or advanced magician where you've advanced yeah. up the hierarchy. So it's like in this world, you're not really part of the bourgeois class or you might own your home and think of yourself as okay, but really you're not so okay. Mm -hmm. But um, you have this advanced magical grade. And so that makes it okay because really in the magical world, you're this advanced adept or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so again, this is the function of ideology to kind of confuse the issues so that you're not really engaging with what might be the, the, the more primary place that you should have your, your attention of critical, your critical intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and so as um, contemporary neo-paganism and Wicca and Thelema become more mainstream, um, the tendency is to have this kind of um, co process of what you might call commodity reification, where um, the concepts and categories that are intended to liberate us instead become a way that they get reabsorbed back into the, the, the bourgeois mm -hmm. set of norms and expectations. Um, and this, we wind up using these systems of attainment to limit ourselves or justify our limitations rather than trying to critique and liberate ourselves from those. Mm -hmm. So Platonism can be a valuable, Platonism can be a way to um, reconform yourself in that way. It can also be liberative. Mm -hmm. So for example, I just want to point out that um, um, somebody who has a wonderful critique of Platonism is Slavoj Žižek, somebody that I use a lot in my thesis and in, in my work. And he points out that um, there's this kind of disavowed radical element also in Plato. So, for example, I just want to point out in Plato's Republic, um, it's um, gender egalitarian. Um, women and men can both be um, members of the guardian ruling class. Um, the, um, the guardians in the Plato's Republic um, all have property in common. So they practice a kind of communism among themselves. Um, it's based on merit. So which, uh, there are classes in Plato's Republic, there's three of them, but which class you're part of is not determined by your birth or your economic status, it's determined by your merit. Um, how well you're able to learn philosophy uh, permits you to join the guardian class um, as opposed to other factors. These are all radical egalitarian elements that are in Plato. So again, it's how you read it. So Platonism can be, has these liberative elements and it also has these conservative elements. And so does Neoplatonic theurgy. It just depends on how you read it. And so that's why hermeneutics, the strategy you have of interpretation is so important in, in magical theory. Um, you have to get clear about what angle you're looking at. What are the questions that you're asking? So that if you have kind of a liberative agenda, you can then find the bits and pieces 
in the texts and traditions that you're looking at that they are then conducive to that as opposed to those who aren't. So for example, um, Alistair Crowley comes from a bourgeois property class background. Uh, he tended to therefore identify with certain Tory cultural ideals or at least ways of talking. Now he doesn't ultimately identify with those ideals, but he's comfortable with having a certain type of personality in terms of his presentation where he'll, sometimes, he'll permit himself to sort of slip into those types of talking points or talk that way. Now, if you read him carefully, he's also kind of, under, ironically, it's ironic, he's also kind of undermining that at the same time. He's kind of leading you on. But it's very easy for people of a conservative bent to read him and, you know, he'll make racist jokes or whatever that, you know, in 1910 would be normal for people to make of his race and class that today people would read and be like, oh, that means he's a racist like I am. And so then this justifies me having, right. and they're not, they're not reading historically when they do that. They're not reading contextually and seeing the way that actually he wants to um, show people how they're not in their ultimate essence able, they're not a, a being that can be identified with their class or their race or their gender or their, um, um, their species or their or their whatever. All of these are are, are are categories that the Kabbalistic zero, which is your ultimate kind of magical essence, a kind of non-essence essence, if you want to put it that way, uh, ultimately permits you to transcend those limitations. But you have to work at it. And so particularly if you're a, a colonial, um, if you're inherent, if you're a white person or a white male in particular, uh, particularly a white straight male, you're inheriting a lot of these ideological assumptions and elements that come from the legacy of colonialism. All of these are part of the old eon for Crowley. Mm -hmm. He posits that there's gonna be this new eon where we're gonna liberate ourselves from a whole bunch of stuff. Well, what are we liberating ourselves from? Well, we're liberating ourselves from sexism, from classism, from racism, from the legacy of the Christian colonial empires that used to control the world but whose ideology still like this sort of ghostly trace still continues to insist in the world. And so if the idea of a new eon has any meaning at all, I think, it's that we need to identify these conservative elements and criticize and critique them. And then it's particularly important for those of us who are white, for those of us who are men, for those of us who are straight, for whether that does or doesn't apply to whoever's listening to this, um, but for those of us like myself, for whom all of those categories apply, um, we have to be proactive. We have to explicitly use magic, not just implicitly, but explicitly to challenge and evaluate that we have to own our privilege or our entitlement. We can't just pretend that we can jump out of those assumptions. We have to own our location within that matrix of forces and try to find ways to, to be more flexible in terms of that. Um, but that's a project. It's a, it's a very difficult struggle, and we need to um, um, we need to engage with that as one of the basic challenges of what we're doing um, with our magical practice. But that means that we need to talk about race. We need to talk about class. We need to talk about gender, and not just assume that because you know we deconverted from Christianity and became pagans that that's over and we don't have to worry about that anymore because we're cool now. That's not going to work. And so uh, I think particularly in the last 
20 years, but even before that, and especially now in the age of Trump, that um, it's becoming more and more of a challenge for the neo-pagan community, which is still very white, for example, to be able to effectively engage with these issues that um, um, there's been a lot of entitlement issues over the last few years in um, the neo-pagan community, problems with trans in inclusion, um, issues of that kind that um, are limiting the potential of what should be a more radical community. And so um, it's not enough just to assume that you're cool because you're part of what once was a radical tradition, but might not so much be so anymore. Uh, there's more work that needs to be done. Um, and the first step of that is pedagogical, educational. We need to start talking about these issues uh, rather than people getting upset when you, you raise these issues. Um, uh, so for example, to be um, more community specific, um, there's still a lot of issue with um, gender definitions in the neo-pagan community. What is a man? What is a woman? And so forth. And there's a tendency that is unexamined for a lot of people to have a kind of biological essentializing of these um, these terms or definitions. Um, I think it's very important to push and promote um, the idea that gender is a social construction that involves biological difference, um, not just having a given value to it, but that um, biology is radically interpretive. Um, that just because your genitalia appear to be a certain way doesn't mean that you um, have any necessary relationship to any particular gender. Um, that there's so many other multiple factors involved that um, the possible diver the diversity of sexual difference overwhelms any kind of biological essentialism that you could have. People are very uncomfortable still talking about this uh, and they wanna relapse or disengage with these issues in a way that, um, and here um, Crowley's queerness becomes very valuable to um, have as a part of the conversation, not the last word, but as, as something that you can um, kind of put back into the conversation or insist on um, as a way to get people to question or um, be challenged with regards to whatever more heteronormative, um, cis-normative um, kinds of uh, categories that they just take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, Crowley can be an ally uh, because he's a kind of queer insurgent. Mm -hmm. And that's also another aspect of his discourse that kind of gets covered over by people who are straight, heterosexual, and don't really want to talk about or deal with that. And so they de-emphasize it. That's why I always try to emphasize it. And I find that that's especially important for me as a predominantly heterosexual person that it also challenges me and whatever my expectations are, that I use Crowley as somebody who is different from me so that I can encounter that difference in his texts, so that I can be challenged by that. Yeah. Actually, can we stay on, on this topic? Um, 
you know, many in the occult and Gnostic world are re-examining language and ideas around gender, uh, sexuality, sex magic, sexual tantra, right? Just like what you're talking about. But I noticed in, in your dissertation, you, you draw from the thought of Lacan. How can Lacan help us with these ideas? Lacan's notion of sexual difference is a notion that is radically discon disconnected from any kind of biological notion of gender. Um, because Lacan is all about the, uh, the way that language is the primary medium whereby human beings have their subjectivity and social shared reality constructed for them. And this occurs in terms of what he calls the symbolic order, which is basically just a way to, to say language. Um, so Lacan is sometimes called a structuralist. That's just another fancy word for language. Structure, the symbolic order, these are, the, it's all language. So what happens is that you have a cultural symbolic order, namely the language that you learn as you're being socialized as an adult, and that becomes internalized into you. And this is what Lacan calls the imaginary. It's the kind of um, um, base level matrix of the learned grammar and social roles that you learn from the larger linguistic usages in society. And that gets internalized, and then you are able to have uh, a private experience of psychological interiority on the basis of the linguistic categories. The only way that reason that we're able to cognitively think in the way that we are as animals is because we have this um, particular um, practice um, that we have called language. And so when you think, you're thinking, you're always cognitively thinking in terms of linguistic categories. And this is the case even with when you have emotional experiences or whatever, and you think, oh no, that's a primary experience that I'm having before language is this emotion. No, when you have a particular emotion, that's just another linguistic signifier that you have that also has to be interpreted. That has some signification that has some linguistic interpretation that you have to give it for that it to then have meaning. Or implicitly you're already interpreted in terms of some linguistic set of categories. So all the experience that we can have is enfolded within this linguistically defined horizon, this hermeneutical horizon of what Heidegger would call being, which is not the same as physical reality. Uh, in fact, we don't have a unmediated ability to just encounter bare objective physical reality. We don't encounter that. We always have this psychological experience through which we, that involve this linguistic grid of categories through which we're able to encounter through a kind of metaphorical relationship, um, some kind of the objective shared reality that we are indeed part of. So um, what that means is categories like gender, class, um, all the different um, ideology associated with patriarchy, that these are bound up with the form of language that we learn so that all of the linguistic categories we have that are already overdetermined in terms of already informed by um, these overarching ideologies like patriarchy, um, like heteronormative gender and so forth, that means that we're already socialized into these categories um, so that there's no ability for us to just naively use language in an objective way that would be free from these categories. So we have to engage with um, these sorts of enveloping concepts 
that have already been determining what we take to be objective reality, which turns out to be much more subjective than we think that it is, or I should say maybe intersubjective. Mm -hmm. um, so Lacan's theory of psychoanalysis is a powerful tool to um, use to um, understand the way that we're always al already embedded in an ideologically rich context of language use that we need to be self-critical about. And so, um, so what that, in particular with gender, um, Lacan is very keen to show that um, the assumed status of the male normative, male normativity is uh, radically socially constructed in a way that is ultimately unfulfilled unfulfillable and self-defeating. And so Lacan's psychoanalysis is, is implicitly um, a criticism of patriarchy. In fact, what he's discovering is that Freudian psychoanalysis generally, what's called the Oedipal complex in psychoanalysis, is implicitly a criticism of patriarchy. Um, the Oedip what's, what is the Oedipal complex? It's how we're messed up by um, our fathers who, um, impose these patriarchal norms on us that traumatize us, all of us, whether we're male or female or, or intersex or whatever. Um, and so um, it becomes the process of therapy is where rather than just taking this trauma for granted, we back up and we re-examine the narrative of our socialization. We go back in our memory and we rediscover the way that we were made to assume that we had to have our personality or have certain social responses or personality in a particular way that are not in fact given, mm -hmm. um, that are not in fact natural at all. Um, they're unnatural impositions of a linguistically imposed social ideology that is flexible, that's historically contingent, that isn't given, that's an illusion, that isn't given at all. And perhaps we can get some flexibility or um, deconstruct our, 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 our need to just be Define in those terms. Um, and so in particular, the work of Slavoj Žižek, again, a person that I use a lot in my own work, um, he defines what he calls dialectical materialism as a kind of merging of a certain type of post-Soviet Marxism mm -hmm. with Lacanian psychoanalysis. And sort of those two things together, kind of Mar Lacanian Marxism, are the methodology of what he calls and what I also use and call dialectical materialism. Okay. So maybe that's the usefulest shorthand to get at um, the particular method that I'm then using to uh, interpret magic theurgy um, as in alignment with this kind of um, trajectory. Crowley often talks about magic as a kind of therapy or psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And so again, I'm using Lacan as a way to kind of return to Freud in a similar way that Crowley is also trying to return to Freud um, as a point where you can yeah. uh, critique these kind of Christian patriarchal norms that still control our society and try to liberate ourselves from them. It seems yeah. like so much of that is kind of built into Crowley's mysticism, right? The, the idea that uh, it's a little bit of an exposure therapy almost where you're, you know, you're the whole metaphor of the star passing through the body of Nuit and having these, assimilating these experiences um, that you consider to be opposite to what you what you think of yourself, but then you actually have to, you know, go through that yourself. So it just seems like tear that, away, right? Tear away the veils of the self. 
right. and yeah. discover that it, um, and then the idea is, oh, you'll get to the true self behind that. Well, not quite. <laughs> right. um, there's actually two mm -hmm. phases to this. Um, as you're going up the tree of life, you get to Tifereth, where you have a kind of knowledge of conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, like, oh, which I'm is done. the, true, the <laughs> right. true self, you think. Yeah. But then that's also an illusion, as you discover mm -hmm. behind that is ultimately just the Kabbalistic zero, which is a kind mm -hmm. of free openness that you can define yourself however you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Crowley so, taking the name Nemo, uh, no one after that experience of, of you know crossing the abyss. So sure, but, yeah. it's helpful when you're starting out to posit the self that you're trying to achieve as a as a positive mm -hmm. entity, um, because that gets the ball rolling. That gets you started. You get to have specific mm -hmm. definitions, and so it's useful to have the idea of the angel initially as if as if it's a positive being, right? That you're you're aiming to achieve some kind of spiritualistic communion with. Mm -hmm. um and but the ideal of crowley's magic is that at a certain point your attainment will get to a certain point where again skepticism will begin sooner or later to also dissolve that experience into a kind of deeper mm -hmm. deeper mm -hmm. kind of negative theological openness right. um that actually increases your increases your freedom or it can lead to psychosis and psychological disintegration, which is why, again, it's useful to start with positing the Holy Guardian Angel as a positive being, because that you begin with an ideal of psychological integration. Mm -hmm. And then when you kind of know who you are and what you're doing, then when you discover that there's this kind of radical openness underneath that, you're not going to go crazy. Mm -hmm. If you just start by completely dissolving your sense of self that can lead to psychosis or reintegration in a false sense of self that's too limited but then you think you're enlightened but really you're just um you've you've really reintegrated into a sense of self that's still too limited mm -hmm. um so again it's useful to kind of stage this out um lots of people like to treat Kalima as a kind of sudden enlightenment path you can do that um, but I find that from my, from my point of view, the results that you get from that are, are often too superficial or it kind of fizzles out. And so mm -hmm. it's more useful to me to kind of set up a staged progression where, you know, it could be different for every person, but you want to give yourself some goals to achieve that you're going to take some time and effort to get to mm -hmm. and then do something else beyond that and then something else beyond that. And then as you're going, the Kabbalistic zero will, will gradually assert itself mm. on its own dynamic. You even don't even really have to worry about it. Mm. And so this need that people feel, oh, I'm going to cross the abyss immediately. I'm going to do this, that, right. or the other thing and achieve. Super. I say, don't worry about that. Let mm. that take care of itself. Instead, give yourself a more constructive, positive goal based on the immediate sense of self that you, I mean, it's all well good to say to yourself that your immediate sense of self is an illusion. You have to get to a point where you can actually experience that in a meaningful way. Right. And that's going to require some effort. That's going to require some time. That's going to require some practice. Mm. And so give yourself some practices to do. Take some time to stage it out to get to wherever it is you think you want to go. Mm -hmm. And be open to the plan changing as you go. Mm. Because as you grow, you're going to develop more complex and sophisticated goals for yourself that maybe aren't going to be what you think your great magical goal is when you're 20 and you're just starting out or whatever, or whatever your age is. 
And, um, you know, 10 years down the line, you're going to have more complex things that you want to do that are going to maybe be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, um, you may very quickly through magical practice have very deep experiences of certain types of attainment or whatever you want to call them. Just like in Zen practice, you may very quickly have certain experiences of Satori or enlightenment. But you've got to stick with it. You've got to you've got to work to deepen those experiences. And if that if you shortcut too quickly, you're not going to be able to get the full benefit out of your your practice. Mm -hmm. um, so this is also a criticism that I have. If I wanted to have a sort of criticism towards the conservative interpretation of Thelema, I would say to a lot of the white, male, bourgeois, heterosexual people who have this interpretation, I would say, you're limiting yourself too quickly when you come to Thelema and you say, oh, this affirms my already existing conservative ideology, what I think the world is supposed to be based on my pre-existing class or assumptions. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say to them, you know, Okay, if you want to have a libertarian quote unquote interpretation of Lima, great, that's fine as a starting point, but let yourself be open to the diversity of the world around you and the experiences that you're mm -hmm. having. Mm -hmm. If you're this Hadith point within the body of Nuit, the great star universe, mm -hmm. let yourself experience that larger universe. Mm -hmm. Be open to the diversity that surrounds you and your ability to um, unite or, or come into communication with these other levels or orders of being that are maybe not going to be on the same page as you are now. Mm -hmm. And you might be able to encounter or be able to then experience, maybe not directly, but at least some sense of what people who don't have the advantages or privileges that you have, mm -hmm. what their experience is like, and you'll grow. And maybe you'll start to think, well, maybe, um, maybe there's this bigger world, this bigger conversation that I could be part of that's maybe not... Hmm. just the, you know, kind of talk that I grew up in. I can, you know, have this encounter with this larger world. Hmm. And if you do that, you know, um, I grew up in the white suburbs in the era of Reagan, hmm. where uh, it was a very conservative context. And it was very important for me to go to college in Berkeley and expose myself to a more diverse um, set of discourses around me. And then you start reading stuff that you didn't think you were going to read. And then you start saying, hey, I'm reading this social book of, you know, socialist philosophy or I'm reading Marx yeah. or I'm reading Freud or whatever. And actually this, you know, this is saying something to me. Mm -hmm. And maybe if I, you know, try to start thinking in terms of this methodology a little bit and start applying and learn how to see how it works. Like, and then suddenly discover, hey, these are actually really good methodologies for trying to understand history or society or whatever. And the idea that if you're... Um, you know, if you start reading Marx, you're going to turn into some kind of Stalinist that you're murdering people in alleys or something like that. But that isn't really true. And in fact, maybe the historical narrative we have about the Soviet Union, maybe that isn't so true either. And then you start reading some history and you realize that it's a much more complex picture over in the Eastern Bloc or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that there was all this other stuff going on. And it's not the narrative that you were told by conservatives is just there's X called communism and it's evil and we have to fight it. And you realize, no, it stands for this whole more diverse set of, you know, complex circumstances. And maybe it's actually maybe saying something to me. And, you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to then turn into, oh, you know, 
great comrade leader Stalin or whatever. No, maybe he actually stays the bad guy. And you realize, oh, he was crushing this much more complex, interesting historical movement that was going on. And um, it was really bad what he did because there was a lot of interesting stuff that was going on, say, in the early 20s in the Soviet Union in terms of linguistics or philosophy or literature or um, social activism or so forth. And that all got suppressed by this military dictatorship that actually didn't have to happen. Um, and then you see, then you're part of this broader conversation, yeah. you know, or you can go over to Fox News and, you know, get re-brainwashed back into this really lowest common denominator kind of um, white resentment-based discourse yeah. Yeah. that I think is really gross and limiting. Um, but, you know, it is going on. So, you know, it's also part of the diversity of what's happening. We have to, um, you know, also engage with those kinds of narratives. Um, so, again, this is part of the diversity of the body of Nuit, mm -hmm. that we have to get engaged with all these different valences. I also read conservative writers. Mm -hmm. I like G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. um, I like William F. Buckley. I do read these people too. Um, now, am I primarily identified with their philosophy? No, uh, because I started there, but I outgrew that and now I'm doing other things. I now primarily identify as a democratic socialist. Okay, um, but again, um, everybody's path is gonna be a little bit different, but um, I do think what's important is yeah. to get into conversation with a broader bandwidth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to change you and that's going to evolve you. And that's great because that means that you're going to be moving more as you become larger. The possibility of what your true deeper will can be is going to get bigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means you're going to grow. That's and great. That's great. As, yeah, yeah that, it's fascinating to use that as, as a kind of dialectical practice that's both very practical and seems very healthy. And also, you know, and it, it, I can see as you were speaking that how it relates to Crowley's kind of language about, you know, being the star passing through the body of Nuit and uniting with these things you think are opposites and then realize that that then expands your sense of self as, as you do that. But I feel like no one or not many people tend to think of that in terms of, you know, engaging with writing and politics they don't agree with, I guess, in our modern sure. kind of occult look practice. At, look at Crowley's yeah. writings and how mm -hmm. complex and diverse his reading lists are. Yeah. You go to like the appendix in Magic and Theory Practice, there's this reading list. There's a huge ton of stuff in there. It's mm -hmm. not just one viewpoint. There's Taoist stuff there. There's Islamic stuff there. There's a whole bunch of Jewish stuff there. Mm -hmm. Crowley is extremely Philo-Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In fact, in the 1930s, a lot of the traditionalists were, and um, some of the, the um, fascist occultists in particular, we're very uncomfortable with Crowley because of how comfortable he was with using Jewish Kabbalistic ideas as really mm -hmm. kind of a really foundation for his system. Mm -hmm. um, I know a whole lot of Jewish Thelemites who really like what he does with Kabbalistic material and find it. Um, uh, my former partner, um, Carrie Seeline, who's unfortunately passed away, she was Jewish and she thought that um, Crowley's approach to Kabbalah allowed her to practice her Judaism in a kind of new and interesting way that um, mm -hmm. she had difficulty in a more traditional uh, Jewish community context, particularly with a lot of more conservative Zionistic elements or certain types of orthodoxy that were kind of limiting what she could do as a woman in those contexts. And she found, you know, Philema very valuable as a way to kind of um, 
express her own Judaism. Mm -hmm. So um, does that mean that Crowley didn't sometimes express anti-Semitism? Yes, he did. But that doesn't mean that there aren't these other philo-Judaic parts of his system that it's, again, it's all about what your hermeneutics is. Mm -hmm. What are the questions you're asking so that um, the things that are of use to you are going to light up in the text that you're looking at? And then what's valuable, you're going to use that. And what isn't valuable that's historically contingent that isn't important, that's going to sort of drop away mm -hmm. and not distract you. Um, so again, it's, it's all how you read. And so we, we have to choose how we're reading and not get distracted when people come along and say, oh, you have to read this way. And we control how you're going to read. Um, I resist it when libertarian Thelemites come along and say, oh, but Thelema is naturally, it's the natural interpretation to have, you know, that it's, it's libertarian. I utterly deny that. I think that the book of the law is radically hermeneutically open. There is no natural interpretation. Every person has a unique relationship to reality that will have a unique interpretation of that and all other magical and other texts. And so you can't come along and say, oh, it naturally has a libertarian interpretation. Oh, it naturally has a socialist interpretation. Um, I think that a socialist interpretation of Lima is valuable historically in the current historical context. But that's because I use a Marxist historicism that doesn't see categories as absolute or natural. It sees all categories as historically contingent that apply to a particular moment in the class struggle. Mm -hmm. And so the meaning of what communism or socialism is, isn't an absolute natural category. There is no ultimate meaning in these categories. They're radically defined by the given historical parameters of the class struggle. Socialism doesn't mean the same to us now as it does for the proletariat in another historical context. What socialism is, is exclusively defined by what the historical praxis of the proletariat is. Mm -hmm. That's what socialism is. So that's what it is for me in a post-Soviet, post-modern context. And since I don't own a company, mm -hmm. since I'm a, I have to work for my living, I'm, a, you know, a proletariat. Now I'm sort of um, have certain property ownership in my family that I derive a little bit of benefit from. So I'm petite bourgeois, but that's still a kind of working class. So you know, it, it's more complex than that. But um, that's why I find these particular categories particularly meaningful now in a context of globalized capitalism where um, we're more and more finding our social opportunities restricted by what's going on in consumer consensus reality. And so I need these, I need these socialist categories to be able to critique that. If that were to radically change, then the meaning of those categories would change and we'd be in another new moment of philosophy. But that hasn't happened yet. So I'm where I am historically at this moment, and I need to use the particular moments of philosophy to get there, uh, you know, to, to, to get to where I want to get to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's what I have to say on that. We're getting there, I think, about the hour and a half mark. So I don't know if you have any more questions that you want to ask me. Oh yeah, I guess there's one that that's pretty pretty important uh, because you made a video about it, and really a question for both of you as well, Nick. If you have some thoughts after uh, Dr. Bjorki, which is, uh, uh, in what sense is Philema Gnostic? And that's good, a pretty good question for a channel called Talk Gnosis. 
Uh, Nick, if you want to say something about first, and then I'll segue off of that. Um, sure. Um, so I, I guess for me, one of the there's a, a few ways to approach that, but recently for me, the one of the more useful uh, pieces in Philema um, that that have, has been part of my own work is is this idea of Toronzin. Um, so I feel like there's multiple ways of talking about Philema as Gnostic in terms of you know individual experience, in terms of um, you know intuition, and all these other pieces, but. For me now, uh, Taranzin and the concept of that being expanded beyond kind of, you know, just an initiatory experience, but actually more of a demiurgic uh, understanding of, of kind of uh, similar to what you're saying, Doctor, in terms of the consensus reality and, and kind of the fixed ideas and ideology that we, we've internalized that have kind of alienated us. Um, in in this it's this contemporary kind of globalized capitalist culture that Charanzin is kind of this demiurgic creator figure and a good kind of symbol to be used um, to kind of explain some of those concepts and to start to deconstruct them. So in my own work recently, that's been kind of one of the ways I've been engaging with some of the Thelemic symbols and concepts as Gnostic, um, and not so less so about anything to do with Thelema and ancient Gnosticism or kind of the debate about Gnosticism, but um, some of this idea of Gnosticism as a kind of um, its own kind of critical theory that's used to kind of start to deconstruct some of these uh, concepts and identities that that we think are fixed or essential but aren't. Um, so you know that maybe that's just <laughs> confusing the issue more. But um, for me, that that's actually been one of the ways I've thought of Philema as Gnostic recently. Sure. Um, well, first of all, gnosis is another one of those, these terms like hermeneutics or dialectic that sounds mm -hmm. like a complicated philosophical term, but actually is a very simple term. Hermeneutics just means interpretation. Mm. Dialectics just means linguistic discourse, talking. Um, gnosis just means knowledge. It means that you know something. You have some procedure that you, you're able to learn or know something. So in a spiritual sense, it means that you have some knowledge about yourself. Mm -hmm. So um, in a Thelemic context, what you're trying to do is achieve gnosis or knowledge of your true will. In other words, your optimal self that you can be, your your optimal potential for being, and how that can be best expressed. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're trying to be kind of like it's kind of like the Nietzschean ideal of creative self-making. You're if um, ultimately there's only will to power, there's only interpretation. Um, if we exist in freedom, then and we are what we make ourselves of then that becomes the project to make ourselves into something that's going to be interesting rather than dumb and dull and vulgar. Mm -hmm. um, so this is sort of the primary magical project, mm -hmm. as you were. Um, the symbolism of Karanzan is that reality is ungrounded, open, and free. Uh, and the ultimate meaning of Karanzan, I think, is ambiguous. Um, it's not a, necessarily a figure of good or of evil or whatever. Uh, it's an obstacle to the magician, at least initially, because the ungrounded nature of reality means that um, we initially experience it as a kind of chaos that's oppositional. Mm -hmm. But as we gain in knowledge, we can use the open freedom of reality to our advantage. We can negate the negation of... Mm -hmm. The given conditions that we find ourselves in and so the quality of the abyss becomes something that we can use rather than being mm -hmm. limited by 
-hmm. And this is ultimately the function of the master of the temple. The temple is the universe. They're the master of their own magical universe. Mm -hmm. Meaning they've passed the abyss, but also in a way they've been dissolved in it. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is, is that if you think that you're an abiding permanent mm -hmm. self, um, that experience won't survive the experience of the abyss or mm -hmm. it'll be corrupted. It won't be able to, you won't be able to manifest yourself adequately. But if you give up on that idea, if you're open to your ultimate nature being the Kabbalistic zero, if you're the Kabbalistic zero, then the abyss can't harm you because you just, you pass through it yeah, um, yeah. because you're nothing, you're no one. And so to the extent that you can have that understanding, Bina is understanding, right? And then Hokma is the wisdom mm -hmm. of that understanding. Um, to the extent that you can make that knowledge meaningful in your life, in your magical experience, that can be a powerful tool for Gnosis. Mm -hmm. But that's up to you. That's up to the particular magician to figure out in accord with the particular trajectory of their true will, how that's going to work. And that's going to be unique for every point of end of reality. Mm -hmm. No two yeah. people, persons are going to have the same uh, expression of that Gnosis. And that seems to, that, that does seem to have a similarity with um, some of the ancient Gnostic myths in terms of, of the Demiurge um, or, or that figure for kind of claiming, you know, I am I or, or that this reality is, is the, the true reality as opposed to kind of deconstructing those veils. So those archons kind of keeping you at those levels as opposed sure. to... Sure. I would say yeah. that there's maybe two useful traditional definitions of Gnosticism in a classical ancient sense. Mm -hmm. Um, this comes from Juan Culiano in his book, The Tree of Gnosis, which is a great uh, text to look at for Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism is a whole bunch of different things in ancient times. And Culiano has a semiotic structuralist reading of that where he says, rather than seeing Gnosticism as having some essential thing that makes these things all the same, let's see it instead as a set of family resemblances where things that are actually complex and diverse overlap in different ways with each other. And so you have this kind of constellation of related discourse systems. So there's two in particular um, features of Gnostic discourse systems in ancient times, one of which is useful for modern Gnosticism and the other one of which isn't useful. Mm. The one, first, the one that isn't useful is radical dualism. The idea that material phenomenality is evil and that you have to um, that you're a supernatural soul that needs to escape from that context. Right, right. I think this idea is no longer useful for us in modernity. So modern versions of Gnosticism are going to tend to not share that family resemblance with ancient Gnosticism. Now, there's another feature of Gnosticism, another family resemblance that is more useful. And this is what Juan Culiano calls radical anthropocentrism. And it's the idea that because human beings have a spark of the pleroma in them, that human existence is radically primary and supersedes natural conditions. This, I think, is an idea of human freedom that makes ancient Gnosticism different from other, it has an antinomian element that makes it different from other forms of Platonic or other forms of ancient spirituality, which tend to affirm natural hierarchy. Gnosticism tends to see natural hierarchies as limiting or restricting or bad, that human essence transcends or is greater than those 
natural hierarchies. That's a useful idea for modern Gnosticism, mm -hmm. is to have the idea that human freedom um, transcends um, the given ideological order mm -hmm. that we find ourselves in. That's a Gnostic idea, uh, and that's a modern Gnostic idea, and that is an idea that links modern Gnosticism with ancient Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Certain types of, you could call it antinomianism. Mm -hmm. um, and again, links Thelemic Gnosticism with certain types of modern radicalism mm -hmm. yeah. that uh, would not be compatible with the conservative libertarian reading of Thelema that would want to see it as more conforming with organic hierarchicalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in this sense, the kind of organicism of someone like Julius Evola is radically anti-Gnostic mm -hmm. in a way that Thelema is a kind of Gnosticism that pushes back against that kind of fascistic Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. yeah. Gnosticism can be radical and liberative, or it can also be a kind of fascism. Yeah. And so it depends which version that you're... Um, Crowley fundamentally turned against fascism when he was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini. Mm -hmm. And so um, he really commits Thelema to being uh, Antifa after that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to tap in again to that valency of um, Crowley's understanding of the philosophy of Thelema. And as neo-fascistic um, politics becomes more assertive in our current political context, mm -hmm. uh, the Antifa element of Thelemic Gnosticism, uh, its antinomian element, the way that it pushes back against traditional hierarchical um, mm -hmm. organicism of patriarchy or misogyny or transphobia or homophobia or um, um, class-based bourgeois contempt for immigrants or migrant communities or that sort of thing, that um, this type of Gnosticism, Gnosticism can be a valuable tool to critique those ideologies of the ruling class. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bjorgi, uh, before we let you go, do you, do you have time to talk Gnostic mass or should we keep that for the future? Um, let's... That's enough of a large topic that I don't we even <laughs> yeah. maybe have that as its own my yeah. follow-up interview or something like that. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about the Gnostic Mass. There's enough richness in that particular text and ritual that that could really form its own conversation. Maybe I would propose that for some kind of future thing. And um, you know, this this might be a good point to uh, to stop. Yeah, wonderful. Well, yeah, uh, we would definitely love to have you back, and it's uh, it's been simply uh, awesome. And I know everybody who has uh, checked out the show, I know I'm talking to you directly now, listener, viewer, I know that you want to know where you can get more of Dr. Bjorgi. Dr. Bjorgi, just remind us one more time where people can find you and engage in your work and all that good stuff. Yes, on uh, YouTube, just put in the search, um, put the words Liberation Theurgy or my name, uh, Nathan Bjorgi, B-J-O-R-G-E, into the search um, button in YouTube and my page will come up. And um, if you're on Facebook, take a look at Temple uh, Sophia Babylon Caledonia. Babylon spelled with an A, not a Y. And uh, we have some Gnostic masses up there that we'd love you to take a look at and some other material as well. Fantastic. Uh, Nick, do you, uh, do you have any plugs or uh, anything for, uh, for where people can find um, you or what sure. have you? Um, so I, I do have a personal blog at uh, thelightinvisible.org. 
Uh, oh, thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> so um, not, not super active, but hopefully it will be more soon. <laughs> so you can find me there. And also on your website, uh, of course, we'll say your first book uh, is, is linked up there so people can buy it. And uh, you have lots of interesting blog posts, even if it's uh, out of date. But uh, yeah. I've heard that you might have some more time for writing. So. I, I do. I do. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully there'll be more writing soon. Fantastic. So everybody check that out. Uh, and for me, uh, mylandmeditation.substack.com. Uh, we're quiet for the summer, depending on when this comes out and when you're uh, listening, viewing, whatever. But that's a Sunday morning secular open meditation for everybody, a mix of guided and silent, good for beginners, good for experienced contemplatives. Uh, we got a great crowd that comes out. I do it in person, usually in Montreal when there's not a pandemic, uh, but I've been doing it online and the people who can only join online want me to keep it going so we're going to set up a camera in the meditation studio you can come join us for free sunday mornings at 11 a.m just sign up for the newsletter at that uh at that address and you know i send out a weekly schedule uh right now we're, we're not doing anything for, for the summer but we will be back in the fall uh for um uh talk gnosis and gnostic wisdom news as i mentioned at the top of the show uh, father tony is doing more streaming he's doing more live events uh lots of interesting stuff uh so check out twitter TV slash Gnostic Wisdom. Uh, Father Tony, I think right now on Mondays or Wednesdays, I'll, we're going to hammer out a schedule, but if you just go there, you will uh, see for yourself he is streaming some uh, uh, Gnostic video games and talking Gnosis while he plays, uh, so you can engage with him there. Uh, and he's also um, uh, as I said, uh, live movies, uh, uh, talks on, on Gnostic subjects where you can have uh, your say on the topic and what have you. So a lot of great stuff coming out there. Okay, so so, uh, Dr. Bjorge, thanks so much again. And uh, this is Jonathan Sword signing off. Bye, everybody. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks, Nick. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, you'll have, you'll have to come back for Bjorge Part 2. Um, yeah. And as I said, I kind of want to do a round table on Nietzsche. I don't know if that's something that might interest you. But like Nietzsche slash, you know, occultism, religion, Gnosticism. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was interesting. I felt like there's a lot, there were so many ways into, I think he logged off. <laughs> there's so yeah, many yeah, ways into that. And like, and, and, you know, yeah, it's really dense. I felt I, I, once he started kind of going with it, it was.